scripture reading for today is from Ephesians chapter 5. Now I'll give you a moment to find Ephesians in your Bible if you wish to follow along. And if you need a Bible, there's a Red Pew Bible in front of you. Ephesians 5, starting at verse 21 and going to 6-4. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hates his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy living long on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. God and Father, come into you now and pray that you would be with us as we seek to sit under your word. Be with all of us, though we are sinful. As we hear what you have to say, be with me, though I am sinful, as I proclaim it. Build us all up in the hope of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So this Advent, as we do most years, we've been taking a break from our usual preaching schedule. This year, preaching through the book of Revelation to spend some time focused on a specific theme. And what we're doing this year is, it's often remarked on by people that there's this danger of taking Christ out of Christmas, that you can get so busy with the holidays that you lose sight of Jesus, which is certainly a problem, but it really reflects a deeper problem that we can have, which is the way that we can take Christ out of Christianity as a whole. There are all different areas of our faith where it is possible for us to lose sight of Jesus and make them about other things. So we've been talking about that in terms of the Bible being about Jesus, in terms of the gospel being about Jesus. And this week, as, um, as the actual holiday gatherings get closer, talking about the idea that our families are to be about Jesus, which is where we're headed, because Ephesians 5 and 6 is really trying to make this point about how our families are meant to be for Christ. 
But I'm also very aware that the first part of our reading this morning is controversial in the modern world, to say the least. And it is one that makes people uncomfortable. And as I reflected on how to engage with the topic of the family and Jesus, I also was um, rem- uh, realized that I don't know that we've ever actually preached on one of the texts like this in the New Testament. And so what we're going to do this morning is actually two things. The first thing we're going to do is talk about that part that's controversial in the modern world and talk about the dynamics of husbands and wives that Paul discusses here in Ephesians 5. Um, we're going to discuss that and what it means and doesn't mean and try to answer some of the questions that people have. Although that's not the point, importantly. We're going to do that, but then we're going to come out of that to try to talk about Jesus and how he relates to our families and our calling to have our families be about him. So that is where we're heading. Before any of that, though, I want to say something else that's disconnected to all of it. I always feel this kind of weight when we have sermons about marriage and child-rearing because I'm aware of the tension that that creates for some of us because not all of us are married or we have situations in our marriage that are really broken or hard or we are unable to have children or, um, yeah, just there's a lot of brokenness that's in play there. And so first I want to name that. And on the one hand, I just want to be clear, because I think the church isn't always clear, if that's you, that you are in no way less of a Christian, less able to serve as a part of Christ's body, just because you're in one of those places. I worry sometimes that while it is normal for people to get married and have children, that we can absolutize it in the way that we talk about it, in a way that makes you feel excluded. So if you're in that place, first of all, know that I see you, Know that if you are a single person serving Jesus, that's great, and you can faithfully serve him there. If if you're a single parent or in one of those situations, you are like a superhero, right? Because you're doing the work of two people um, alone. And so understand, as we talk about this, that that's in no way diminishing what you are doing in your life. But um, also just recognize the church is supposed to be the family of God. That's what we're meant to be together. And part of the reason that scripture addresses these things for all of us to hear and for us to talk about together is because it's helping all of us to understand what Jesus has designed marriage and families to do. And even if you are not currently in one of those states, you can serve the church still in this design, both spiritually, like there are a lot of people who spiritually like parent my kids besides Elizabeth and I that I'm grateful for, and also in terms of just encouraging and helping other people as they're in the middle of it. That said, we're going to shift then to talking about family, and we're going to start talking about the challenging stuff. So let's first discuss what Paul says here about husbands and wives. And right up front first, let's just name the hard part, right? It's the part at the beginning where he talks about wives submitting to their husbands. That is uncomfortable language in our world. And there are a lot of questions that people have. Does that mean that women are inferior? Is that excusing abuse? Questions like that. And the answer that, of course, I'm going to give to those questions is no, but we're going to have to go on a little bit of a journey, I think, to really appreciate this. So first of all, before we answer those questions, and before we give kind of some nuance, we should say a couple of things to maybe make this a little bit more challenging. First of all, this is not the only passage in Scripture that says these things. There's actually several texts in the New Testament that basically give these same commands. Paul says the same thing in Colossians 3, and Peter in 1 Peter 3 gives these same instructions. There he says, first to wives, he says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And then Peter says to husbands, 
Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So this is not a one-off thing, first of all. There's several places in Scripture that talk about it. It's not like that one weird thing about head coverings in 1 Corinthians or something that we can kind of, you know, just feel like, well, I don't really know what to do about that. And in addition, the main way that some Christians try to get out from under this text is also probably problematic. The way that some Christians will try to not have to deal with these is they'll say, well, this was just a cultural thing. That for Paul, in his world, marriage functioned this way, and he's just in this kind of Greco-Roman setting, and this is how he's talking about marriage. But, you know, the Bible says all this stuff about how men and women are equal in Christ, and so long-term, the goal of the Bible is really to make it so that it doesn't work this way, and that, um, and that in our culture and our world, Paul's words don't apply. Now, that argument is wrong, but it does say something that's important and true. And so first we should say what's true about that, which is that it is very true that the Bible elevates the role of women um, in its, compared to the world around it and views men and women as equal. Um, in fact, we should not miss, for example, that in Ephesians 5.21, before any of this, Paul says that men and women should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ in the body, right? So everyone in the church is supposed to be submitting to each other, both men and women. Or in 1 Peter, Peter stresses to husbands that their wives are heirs with them of the grace of Jesus, meaning they're equal with you in the, the kingdom and in terms of the church. Um, and all of that was very countercultural in the Bible's world. Scripture does have a high view of um, women. But there is nothing in these texts that indicate that they are culturally conditioned. That's the flip side of it. It's very... Um, there are places in the New Testament where you have these discussions of things like food sacrifice to idols or dress or things like that where the concern seems to be the surrounding culture and how the church fits in with the surrounding culture. And in those texts, what you find is that there, the, the Bible will say things like, in order to have a good reputation with those around you or in order to help those who are new to the faith not to stumble, you should do these things. That's how it deals with those cultural commands. And there is none of that in any of these texts. Uh, so, with that said, what do we say about them, right? What do we make of that? And let me try to answer that question in a couple of steps. First of all, it is important to stress before we go any further in this sermon that while Scripture does discuss these things in terms of husbands and wives, it's always addressed to marriage and not to men and women in general. There is nothing resembling these commands about husbands and wives and the different dynamics that they have about how men and women in general are supposed to relate to each other. And that's important because some kind of fundamentalist Christian churches have tended to try to say that men are supposed to submit to women, which is not a biblical idea, right? The dynamic that's in play is only about marriage. And in addition, men and women in Scripture are clearly equal in terms of their humanity and their value and their place in the world and the kingdom. In Genesis 1, when God creates human beings, it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, right? They're equally made in the image of God on the earth to do his work. But scripture does view some of the specific temptations and struggles of the two genders to be different. We are equal, but we are different in some significant ways. And some of those differences play out in marriage. 
to see that, let's actually jump back from Ephesians and look at Genesis chapter 3, all right? In Genesis 3, we read the story of the fall. The serpent comes to Eve, and she rebels against God by eating the fruit that was... um, that promises to make her equal with God, and she gives the fruit to Adam, and he eats it too, and then God comes, and because of their rebellion, declares this set of curses, okay? First, listen to what God says to Adam. So God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. What was Adam's failure in the story of Eve? After all, Eve was the one who's tempted by the serpent, right? What is Adam's failure? Adam's failure was fundamentally, in Genesis 3, a failure to take responsibility for his family and care for their good. He should, I mean, he should have, like, stomped on the snake or something, right? Or at the very least, he should have talked Eve out of eating the fruit. He should have intervened in some way. But um, Eve, re- Eve requires the clever manipulation of Satan, right, <laughs> to buy into this thing. And Adam, sh- you know, she just gives some fruit to Adam, and he's like, well, you know, I don't really want to fight about it, and he joins in the sin. And notably in the Bible, that is actually treated as the central sin in the fall. Strikingly, I mean, you'll hear sometimes in the modern world that feminists will say that the Bible blames Eve, but it never does. It very explicitly always blames Adam for human, humanity's fall into sin. Adam, in his refusal to take that responsibility for his family, is the one that's ultimately at fault. And then as part of the curse against Eve— God says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So part of the curse is this sort of tension that's created between Adam and Eve. That he failed to take responsibility and lead and take ownership, and she now also finds her desire to in some ways be in tension against that leadership and responsibility he has. Her desire seems to be somehow to replace him or remove his power, but also that she can't. And that is the tension that is at play in Genesis 3. So coming out of that, I think that Scripture views two sins as being in play in that story, and two sins as being a common struggle we can have in marriage. One, it is easy for men to stop taking responsibility for their marriages and families, to check out. I mean, it's easy for men physically to check out, right? That's a reality that because of our biology in the world that men can abandon wives and children, right, in a way that because of pregnancy and different things women aren't able to. Um, But it's more than just physically checking out. It's also checking out spiritually and emotionally. I mean, Adam is physically present in Genesis 3, right? But his failure is to be the person who takes spiritual ownership for the good of his wife. He checks out, and that is his ultimate sin. And then alongside that, Scripture would seem to think that it is easier for women to encourage that process of men checking out or be complicit in it by cutting them down and undercutting their attempts to have the responsibility they're supposed to take. Through the subtle erosion of criticism and subversive actions, they can undermine that role of their husbands. And it's just worth saying that in the Bible's view, that actually makes sense because, I mean, men are the more dangerous gender in the way that God has designed the world to work because of just blunt realities of how people are physically constructed and how human sexuality works. Men represent certain dangers in the world, and there's an understandable temptation to attempt to then just remove their ability to be dangerous, to remove all of their power. 
The problem with that is that that sort of undercutting process doesn't just remove their ability to do bad things. It tends to just remove their desire to do anything. And importantly, that temptation that women might have does not in any way excuse the failure of men in Scripture. It's viewed as two separate real temptations that men cannot blame their checking out on women, but um, women cannot simply blame men either, that there's this broken way of relating that exists, and that gender is a part of that broken way of relating. So that's the background, right, I think, that men can be particularly tempted to check out, and women can be particularly tempted to cut down. And that's the framework within which I think we are supposed to understand Ephesians 5. So first, let's talk about the command to husbands. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So the husband is called to love his wife, but notice particularly to love her like Jesus, and Jesus in terms of the cross, in terms of his giving himself up. Husbands are called to give up their interests and their comfort and even their lives and to do it seeking their wives' good, both physically but also spiritually and emotionally, their, lives, their wives' good. In Scripture, leadership always means seeking to put other people's good ahead of your own, always. And that's why Paul then says to husbands, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Importantly, that is why this biblical picture that's calling men in some ways to step up ought never be used as an excuse for abuse. Because, in fact, it's saying the opposite, right? That you're supposed to look at your wife as your own body. And the thought of doing harm to your own body is supposed to be disgusting. It's self-mutilation. That's what he says in verse 29 when he says, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So Paul's explicitly calling that out. But that's the command of husbands, to take ownership for their family, to seek to take responsibility in love. We're going to talk about the wives part in a second, but I just want to pause and really hammer this first part to men. And um, men, because I'm a man and because I feel like there's a place for kind of bluntness about this topic, I'm going to be blunt, all right? Guys, your family is in a real sense your responsibility And I don't mainly mean your responsibility in the sense of being a breadwinner. I mean your responsibility in the sense that your wife feeling love and cared for, your children knowing about Jesus and following him and knowing that you love them and all of that. That is your job before it is anyone else's. In fact, I mean, I say that about being a breadwinner because I think sometimes in our world we've we've reduced the idea of taking responsibility to our families, to going and making money for them in a way that is actually undercut what Scripture calls us to, right? We are called to, you know, to work and seek to help provide and care for our families, yeah, in our jobs. That's a good thing to do. But if, that, if that's used by us as an excuse to not love and cherish, right, our wives, if it's used as an excuse to not be engaged in our children's lives, then we're actually failing to take the sort of responsibility Scripture calls us to. We will come Judgment Day have to stand before Jesus, I will, and give an accounting not just for my personal life and piety, but for, um, <laughs> but for my family, right? Jesus is going to ask me, did your wife, um, did you care for her the way that I cared for the church? Did you do everything possible to put her needs first? 
did you raise up your children in the nurture and discipline of Jesus and train them in the faith? As a man, as a father and husband, I will specifically have to answer those questions. Now, there is grace in that. We all are not going to be able to give perfect answers to those questions, right? We all fall short, and I don't want to lose sight of that grace. God's mercies are there for us as we fail in these callings of parenting and marriage, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But that grace should not excuse our sin. And one, frankly, probably the greatest tragedy of the last 80 years of American life is the way that men completely checked out of the spiritual and relational and community and emotional um, elements of our world and in a way that left unimaginable carnage in its wake. Our failure to step up and really seek to care for our families is a fundamental failing that we need to remember. And one last note about all of that in our moment. Uh, Men should not blame women for that failure. It's very popular among some circles on the radio and internet to tell this narrative that says that the reason that men are checked out is feminism. And um, that would be a bigger topic to discuss, the interplay of those things, but the reason men are checked out is sin, right? It's Adam's sin. It's always been the temptation that we have had, and we need to take ownership of that. All right, that's straight talk, but I feel that weight as a man And I would encourage all of you as husbands and fathers to just be mindful of that call to step up. Then let's talk about the command of wives. Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So here's the question we've got to answer, right? Because this is the tough part. What does Paul mean by submit? Because in our world, that word is always negative, right? I mean, nobody ever talks about submitting to something in a positive way. But scripture does not use it that way, right? I mean, it pictures submission as something that can happen in good ways. We're called to submit to each other in Christ just before this. And the analogy here is of our submission as believers to Jesus, right? which does not mean submission to the abuse of Jesus or to the exploitation of Jesus, right? It's something that's good. I think, within the context of what we said, that the main way that we should hear this command to wives is that they are being called to encourage and respect the leadership of their husbands as their husbands seek to show it. To respect and encourage their husbands as they seek to take the responsibility that God has called them to. Now, that said, that does not mean that that is always going to be an easy process, Um, right? It's not saying respect their leadership when it's 100%, you know, what you want them to do or, um, or wait for them to figure it all out and then you can start to encourage them. But um, Paul's point applied to that situation of dynamics of marriage that we talked about um, is that wives can be in danger of cutting their husbands down. And that doesn't excuse their husbands of failure to step up, but it is also a reality that we need to be mindful of. Um, Let me try to name a way that that can apply in marriage. And just to note, on the wives' part, I will, A, not probably be as blunt, and B, I talk this over with my wife, because I'm very mindful in a sermon like this one, of being a dude. But um, one of the temptations that I think can happen in marriage for women is that they can think that the way to help their spouse step up is by criticizing them into it. Um, 
by kind of consistently and faithfully pointing out all of the ways that they are failing to be the husband and father that they are supposed to be. The, uh, you know, pointing it out to their spouse and to everyone else around them. And the idea is that you can just, like, if you can just apply enough pressure, you can get them to change. And, um, and there is a place for disagreement in marriage, to be clear. By saying criticizing, I don't mean not never disagreeing. I mean, you know, when, you're, when your husband comes home and he's like, hey, honey, let's, like, put the kids up for adoption and sell the house and go buy a yacht in the Bahamas. It's like, no, is the right answer to that. But um, scriptures claim to be that the main way you as a wife can help your husband take ownership as he's tempted to check out is by um, not so much by criticizing his faults, but by expressing respect and admiration for the things that he is doing and seeking to build him up in that first by consistently praising and encouraging them in the ways that they are in that process. And that framework of respect then can provide the framework within which criticism can be heard and worked through. And But the danger that I think it's warning against is that it's easy to just say, I want you to be better, and so I'm going to try to just, like, you know, bear down on you to be better, and what that ends up doing is leading to discouragement for the other person and causing them to check out more. Um, That is what Peter, I think, is getting at in what we read in 1 Peter 3, when he talks about how wives should do this for their husbands so that if they don't believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. All right. So that's all the controversial stuff, and I know that was kind of a long walk. And I'm not going to pretend, like, at the end of that thing that that's not in some ways still culturally hard for us to talk through those issues. But I hope you at least recognize the outlines of why Scripture addresses this issue the way it does. And I'm happy to visit with you more. But I also just have to say, as much as we feel tension with the specifics, if you step back a minute and look at that thing from the outside as God designed it to work, I mean, just, if you picture verse 33, right? Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband, right? I mean, if that was actually how a marriage worked, fully, perfectly, 100%, right? That would be a beautiful thing. You would say, wow, like that's, you know, that's something that I can appreciate and admire. And so I hope that you get a glimpse of that beauty. All right. That said, the point of the sermon was not any of that, like we said. The point of the sermon is to talk about Jesus And so let's talk about family and Jesus then. The reason we're looking at Ephesians 5 and 6 this morning is because while Paul says some stuff about husbands and wives, he does something else that's in some ways more important. Notice how Jesus is woven through the whole discussion. For example, if you pick up in verse 23, when he's talking to wives, he's talking about the husband um, leading, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Paul's argument is that the structure of marriage is meant to speak to the structure of Jesus in the church. Then, going on in verse 25, it calls husbands to love your wives the way Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Notice there's four words there, really, about husbands and wives, and the whole rest of that is about Jesus, right? And then he goes on in verse 27, "...so that Jesus might present the church to himself in splendor." without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Paul takes the whole gospel, right, that Jesus gave himself up in order to work, you know, salvation in his love and draw people to himself, and then is at work um, in them loving and serving and building them up so that ultimately they may be presented before his throne in splendor. He takes that whole gospel story, and he somehow connects marriage to it. 
Now, on one level, we can read all of that. I think the first time we read through it, we read it and think that all Paul is saying is that Jesus provides a good example for marital love. And that is something that Paul is saying. It is true that Jesus should be an example for that sort of self-sacrificial love. But he actually goes further. If you keep reading in verse 31, as Paul's continuing to talk to husbands, he quotes Genesis 2, when marriage is created. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That is the verse in Genesis 2 where marriage is established. So Paul quotes that verse, and then next, his, the very next verse in Ephesians 5, he says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So he's actually saying that that passage about marriage is somehow actually about Jesus, and only secondarily about us. It's not just that Jesus is a good example for our marriages, but somehow Jesus is the point of marriage. He is what it's about. So what does that mean for us? Well, it's not just that our marriages should be like Jesus. It is that marriage should be for him. The purpose of marriage is to embody and reflect the gospel. Let me just name two ways that that's true. One, part of the purpose of marriage is for each of us to be making our spouse a better, more faithful Christian. Jesus is at work building us up and sanctifying us, and Paul talks about us seeking to sanctify our spouse. And again, when I say that, don't hear the wrong idea. I don't primarily by that mean point out all the ways they're falling short of Christ. Um, But what I mean by that is, like Elizabeth and I certainly do not have a perfect marriage, but one of the most beautiful things about it has been the ways that we have each built each other up over the years. That Elizabeth has taught me to serve Jesus better, and she enables me to minister to others and use my gifts for the kingdom. And I likewise, I don't know if I've taught her anything, but hopefully I enable her to use her gifts and serve the kingdom better than she could on her, on her own. We, um, in that, that way, are each helping each other to be more like Jesus. So that's part of the purpose of marriage. But it's also more than that. It's also that our marriage is meant to serve as an embodiment of the gospel of Jesus. That each of our marriages is meant to be a visible illustration of the gospel of Jesus Christ here on earth. The way that we relate to each other and the priorities we share, that is all meant to be a way that Jesus is seen by the people around us. We should be inviting people into relationships, into the community of our home in a way where they actually learn and find more believable the love of Jesus from the way we treat each other. Marriage is for Jesus. And we need to hear that because we live in a world that can teach us that marriage is, in fact, for other things. And I don't just mean, like, you know, people that are attacking marriage or something, but the people who defend marriage in our culture. They'll say, well, here is why you get married, right? Because you find someone that makes you happy, and you commit to each other, and there's all these financial benefits of marriage as you, you know, join together and specialize, and there's, you know, the stability of a home that helps you to have a more fulfilled life, and you know, and gives your children more stability. Um, That's why they say you should get married. And here's the thing. Those are all real social benefits of marriage, right? It's not that those things are untrue. But marriage is not for those things. Marriage is for God. It's for Jesus Christ and service to him. And even, um, and, and if we make those other things the point, it actually can distract us from that point. 
One last note on all of that. I know that some of you feel burdened also. We talked before about those who are maybe unmarried or whatever, but I know that talking about God's ideal for marriage, all of us are challenged because we fall short of it, but some of us are in places where we just feel like um, we are very... um, We're married to someone who's just not interested in that at all, right? That being unequally yoked is the idea in Scripture, and that can be a hard place to be when you hear about that idea. And so if that is you, let me just say a couple of things to you. One is that um, as we describe that marriage, that's a picture of Jesus recognized that even though your marriage might not be in that place, the gospel is still true, right? (laughs) Marriage is supposed to be an imperfect image of Jesus' love for the church. And even if if ours is really, really, really imperfect, Jesus still loves the church in that way. And that available, that love of Jesus Christ is available to you as a single. So know that. And then two, recognize that in loving your spouse, you can actually be a part of this. Um, Yes, that you won't be maybe like in the place that your heart longs to be in terms of showing the rest of the world. But, um, but laying your life down in love for somebody um, who, who isn't, uh, you know, who's, who's, who's a sinner, I mean, that's the gospel, right? And you can actually be showing your spouse the gospel even in those kinds of hard places in marriage as you love them, which is what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3. Marriage is for Jesus. And then also, that is true of how we raise our children. And we should note, too, when we talk about raising children, for some of us that are older here, it's worth also remembering, like, many of us have grandchildren, and that's the place we're at in life. And while it is, there's a step removed from that, you're not the same thing as a parent in Scripture, you are still very much engaged in this calling, too. But that said, um, let's skip to Ephesians 6, right? Notice now, Paul shifts to talk about family. But he says this. First, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So on one level, he's giving the command, children, obey your parents, which is one of the Ten Commandments. And just to note, especially for those of you that are younger here, um, that can be a hard calling and part of you especially serving these, right? When you're older, you still have to honor your parents. And honestly, like, that's still a thing that I have to work through and process what that means. But if you're a young person who still lives at home, yeah, that, that can be an especially central calling. And just know that Jesus is pleased as you seek to engage with that calling, even though it can feel countercultural. Um, we live in a world that loves to say, just rebel and do your own thing, right? But that said, um, while that is calling us to obedience, it also, he says, obey your parents in the Lord, right? Which is an interesting little thing to interject there. And what does he mean by that? Well, on one level, maybe he means that delineates the limits of obedience, Every relationship that involves some sort of submitting or obeying in Scripture, the, the, the limit is always God's authority, right? There's no authority that goes beyond God, and so part of it might be that. But um, it's also pointing to something deeper, I think, which is that in that call for children to respect their parents in the Lord, Paul's calling them to recognize that they are actually doing that for God, too. <laughs> that, that the way that children relate to their parents is part of their calling to give glory to God and honor him. And so it is, in a sense, about Jesus. And likewise, in verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Paul says. First, a note, why does it say fathers specifically, right? We, we might ask. Um, 
It's not that mothers shouldn't do this. It's not moms provoke your children, right? That's not the logic. But it's specifically addressed to fathers because of what we said earlier. That A, men are especially tempted to check out, and this is specifically a call for fathers to be engaged in a way with their children. And, um, And particularly because in Scripture, fathers are actually viewed, in a sense, as the primary parent. One of the, the, the weirdest ideas biblically that happened in America, frankly, in the, la- in the West in a co- the last couple hundred years is that um, children are the woman's job and that men are supposed to have little or nothing to do with them. But in Scripture, the person whose main job is to raise children is the father. Now, of course, mothers are great and are also very much involved in that, but that, that it is actually unbiblical for men to have the view that says, well, this isn't really my concern. And that... Dudes, that includes changing diapers when they're little. That includes having a good relationship with them when they're adults. That you are called to be engaged in parenting. But then notice what their task is. It's to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That specifically is what Paul is calling them to do. Not just to be good parents in a sort of generic way. I think in our, in our world we have the idea that the main job of raising children is just to, like, make them be not too dysfunctional, right? Make them be okay citizens. Make them be moral enough that they don't, you know, (laughs) that they don't do anything monumentally dumb. And those are all good things. Like, if you accomplish those things in parenting, that is definitely better than the alternative. But in Scripture, our calling as parents is particularly to raise our children in the Lord. Raise them in the truths of God, to teach them the gospel with our words and with our lives, to help them to understand not just what it means to be like a decent human being, but what it means to be a Christian in the ways that we raise them and walk before them. And again, if I could speak to one of the challenges that that can present in our setting, it is all too easy for us as parents to regard the religious training of our children as primarily the task of the institutional church. That is a very common idea we have, that We say, well, there's these church programs, and if I send my kids to these programs, I've done all that's necessary in terms of raising them in the nurture and discipline of the Lord. Now, look, those programs are wonderful, right? And you should send your kids to them um, if you can. But in God's design, every child has sort of a pair of children's ministers assigned to them. They have a pair of youth pastors assigned to them. That's supposed to be the parents, right? That, I mean, like, Jordan doesn't have to stand before Jesus on Judgment Day and give the main accounting for your kids. Jordan is our youth director. He's great. But, you know, I mean, each of us will have to give that accounting before him. And, um, and it's important for us to engage with that calling. Now, that is a hard calling, right? Sort of like when we talk to men, it is important to say that there is grace in that calling. All of us fall short of it in parenting and in marriage. And in just a minute, we're going to talk about that grace. But first, I just want to say, um, some of that heaviness is actually a good thing for us to feel about these tasks. I mean, if you're with your spouse or your kids right now, just, just look at them or imagine them if they're not here with you. In Scripture, human beings are put on the earth with one ultimate job. It's to glorify God by taking care of what he's made. Right? In the the big picture story of the Bible, that's what we're for. We're supposed to bring glory to God's goodness by taking care of what he's made. And when we say what he's made, 
those people you are picturing right now, for you, those are the main things God made that you were called to take care of. That there's, it's bigger than that, yes, but your job one is to say that those pieces of creation, right, those human beings that God has placed in my life, that is my first calling, to care for them in a way that brings glory to God. We cannot take that responsibility lightly. It is a real responsibility, and we will have to give a real account for it. But, like we said, it is also a responsibility that comes with grace. It comes in the context of God's grace shown to us in Jesus. We talked about how Jesus' love for the church and giving of himself for it is both an example and it's sort of the purpose of marriage. But it's one more thing, too. It is the foundation of it. It is actually the foundation on which we undertake this whole calling to build our families. We will fail in each of these callings. No husband is the perfect self-sacrificial, you know, like giving of himself, lover of his wife. No wife always communicates respect and encouragement. No child obeys and respects their parents continuously in all things. No parent perfectly raises their child in the nurture and discipline of the Lord. And the good news in each of those settings is that while we are called to pursue the example of Christ, and while we are called to seek God's glory in those things, what we are rooted in is the fact that while we do all of those things imperfectly, they all reflect the perfect work that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus gave himself up for us so that he might sanctify us by the washing of water and the word, and he will present us to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or blemish, made perfectly holy by his blood. Those things that Paul says here about Jesus and his work in Ephesians 5, those are true of his work for you. The gospel is like The way I think about it is that Jesus is both, he's the ceiling that we're called to reach towards, right? He's the sort of like goal that we're pursuing, but he is also the floor on which we stand as we do it. And so when we fall, it is always him that we are falling back on. So that is the hope out of which we are also called into this task. Let's seek to follow Jesus. Let's seek in our families to make them about him. And let's seek to do it in the context of the grace that he has shown us. Let's pray. Father, I know we're all different places when we wrestle with this calling, and so I just pray that you would meet each of us where we are. If we feel discouraged or saddened, if we feel challenged or encouraged, if we feel like we struggle to believe that, you know, that hope and healing is possible, or if we think we've got it all figured out when we don't, wherever we're at in these things, call us to serve our Lord Jesus Christ in the way that we care for those that you have placed in our lives. Pray all of this in his name. Amen.